right, so you're listening to NYC Radio Lab. I'm with Derek Gripper here in um, Lenny Stern Studio in the East Village, historic musical place. Uh, he just played an amazing concert for uh, Robert Browning Associates. Um, pretty incredible. And um, I don't know, you got the guitar in your hand. Do you feel like playing before we chat or you want to just... Yeah, we could play. Sure, yeah, go for it. So you kind of you d- you discovered some new stuff with with the instrument. Um, what I guess you know you started you started as a, as a classical musician. I take it, and and then what happened? So I started as a classical. Gu- no, I started as a classical violinist, and then I learned to bass guitar to play in bands and things like that. But uh, I started playing classical guitar, uh, you know, in the middle of my teenage years, and that challenge of learning it was really an interesting challenge. You know, it was I really enjoyed it a lot. But once I kind of woke up and started paying attention to the music, then I realized I didn't really like the music so much. Yeah, I I kind of had the same issue. I I learned I learned classical guitar because I was a wedding DJ, and I thought, oh, I can make more money as to play the ceremonies and um, which made me the most dedicated uh, wedding DJ in history because it was like four hours a day you know um, for a couple of years but I was looking for material that like grooved and I thought oh like Vila Lobos he's from Brazil like this will groove but I didn't find it I mean <laughs> it doesn't groove no I I was really searching the world for two things. One for like this kind of guru teacher who would be, you know, who would be sort of all knowing and, you know, fabulous and really be connected to the real source of music, you know. And for that, I went to India uh, to study, you know, Indian classical music. Then I gave up on music and I went to India to study yoga. I thought, okay, maybe the yogis are going to be like really, you know, because I was kind of encountering professionals you know, who were teaching at universities or, you know, had this kind of, and I was really looking for this, you know, the, you know, the idea we have of music after when you're 19 and you've read Siddhartha or something, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't find any music that grew, like Villa Lobos, you know, you try and it kind of, and, you, and you, you persuade yourself that some of it works and Bach was definitely something that, that had something, but then you kind of step away from the, the technical challenge of playing and you're like, ah, but this isn't still not really the music that I would put on a record player if I wanted to listen to music. I wasn't listening to this music. I was listening to Keith Jarrett and and stuff, you know, I don't know. And then I discovered Igberto Gismonti and he was playing nylon string guitar and it 
rocked. It was like amazing, you know, and he was playing dirty and he was grooving. And so that's when I woke up and realized, okay, that you could do something with guitar, but. Right. Yeah. No. Okay. It seems like we, we, we uh, followed the same path and made the mis- same mistakes about the guys <laughs> with the flowing <laughs> robes and yeah, all yeah, this yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. must have it all figured out. You're wearing saffron. Exactly. You're looking great. <laughs> so, um, all right, so you discover the Egberto Gismonti, and then when did you start finding your own path? Because, I mean, you, you found something with, with African uh, yeah. grooves. Well, I, I, so I had, a, I had like at these two, like the left shoulder and the right shoulder was Egberto Gismonti on the one side and this guy called Paul Galbraith on the other who was playing eight-string guitar. And so Paul was playing in this pristine, incredible architecture of classical music. He was making it feel like the guitar could be a great classical instrument and that you could, you know, really sort of play the ideals of classical music. But then on the other side, you had Gismonti, who was just, who was just you know, reaching into the bowels of the instrument. And, and so I was oscillating between these two extremes and, and you know, playing really strict classical and then trying to you know, write music like Gismonti. It, it took a long time until about 2010 when I decided, hey, why don't I actually try and play Gismonti's music? I hadn't really thought of doing that because he plays 10-string guitar and the scores don't exist. So I started transcribing his music for guitar and I, and I made an album called The Sound of Water where I put some of my compositions alongside his. And I was playing pieces. A lot of people play his music, but they play his piano music. Guitarists transcribe forever and all these things so i was i was playing his actual guitar music and transcribing it onto guitar which not very many people do so that was the beginning of the idea of transcribing from recordings at the same time as listening to gismonti and and paul galbraith on classical guitar i discovered this album by tumani called kaira tumani diabate the chorus player from mali so there you hear the groove but you've got the counterpoint of bach altogether in one thing but it's completely impossible that that could be played on guitar because there's this polyrhythms and he's keeping a bass line the whole time because it's a harp and you know so i thought maybe if i invented some kind of multi-string guitar then i could have the bass line going on kind of a harp and then be able to improvise on the top because i didn't understand the music uh, but about 2011 i had a a brainwave and i slowed it down slowed down the recording and then i was oh my gosh this is what he's doing i could suddenly hear what he was doing and then I started retuning the guitar until I found a, a tuning that worked and then transcribing it very painstakingly onto the page and that's what became uh, the record One Night on Earth Alright so yeah there was I guess a bunch of techniques that you must have kind of discovered along the way I wonder if you could, could demonstrate some of them I mean one is just like those amazing runs that the Cora does oh. yeah yeah, I mean the first the first thing I did was was playing like them, so playing like the chora when I played Bach or when I played my own composition. So you know, bringing out these little these little stops and these things and little little trills and so I started developing that. But the tuning came out of out of the out of the uh, transcribing. So I made. This became the tuning that works for all chora music, which is D, A, D, like the drop D of classical guitar, and then the F sharp of Renaissance lute. You know, you know like that, um, we 
together D A D F sharp B E and I've got a capo on the third fret now so it's different um, that gives you the basic all the chords that you really need for the chorus music so the first piece I did was uh, tubaka That stuff is heartbreaking. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. piece. It's totally crazy. No, it was really exciting to be able to hear it on guitar and play it on guitar and finally be playing the music that I would actually put on a record myself, you know, that I would want to listen to. <laughs> that was really amazing. And that was a bre breakthrough because I hadn't, that hadn't been the case before. I wasn't sort of putting on a Villalobos record in the afternoon, you know, and then practicing it the next day. So this was the first time that listening integrated with the, with the playing. And interestingly, I mean, the nylon string guitar is not so far from a, 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 the <laughs> fishing line of a Cora. No. And what's crazy was that, you know, Tumani would do things like you'd have, you'd have a line that went up high and you couldn't get to the bass note and he'd have an open string in that one place. For just, you know, there'd be an open string there. You'd be like, wow, if that hadn't been an open string, I wouldn't have been able to play it. So it, it felt like he'd, he'd really planned out everything so that it could be played on guitar because it's perfect. It just falls straight onto... Once you have this tuning, everything on the chorus just falls straight onto the instrument. There's really not, literally nothing you can't play on the guitar. And and what what are some of the varieties of, of grooves that you discovered? I mean, this kind of has that... What else did you come across in, in these transcriptions? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's things like this one, which, you know, so, so that Jarabi has the 332, which I don't think that's how, you know, most griots would think of it. But that rhythm. Then you've got something like this one.
kind of kind of cool huh? <laughs> yeah yeah it's stunning and you know i've had these funny we were talking before how we, I, I, I have my own history studying with griots and, and i remember that change in feel i can remember exactly them uh, Fumoro Jibate looking me in the eye as as he switched the field to that and the implication being like you don't know anything about music <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean I, the first time i heard that was in was in a recording by Nadak and ganesh the the the, the the he's a guitarist from france lives in Oroville, and ganesh is as a carnatic violinist and at some point there's a there's a percussion solo which i later heard was was played by um vikavanayakram's son um Selva ganesh and he's playing and he's in the groove and then suddenly it goes into like another gear and changes and that was like one of the most exciting things i've ever heard in music it's like oh my god you can do that you know it's amazing <laughs> wow you know Selva ganesh is in town by the way just so you know no way yeah uh, I studied with his with in 2001 2000 I spent 6 months in Chennai with studying with his family. Oh great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, small world. Yeah, I was with Swami Natan yesterday. Uh, yeah. Um cool. Wow. Um so All right, so you discovered all this kind of stuff and and now you, you probably just felt like you kind of like arrived as a, a musician like you found something new that was lacking <laughs> in the whole in the repertoire of of class of gu- yeah. classical guitar well the first the first step was to was to try and you know the, my first thing was i wanted to present the idea that they were great african composers and you know bach would have been going into the studio to put his ideas down if there'd been electricity you know so you know tumani going into a studio and bach writing something down i see as very similar activities very different from a modern composer who's sitting in Sibelius or writing on page you know and then giving it to musicians I, I see written music in early European music as a much more sense of recording than planning you know the music existed in their fingers and their ears and they could write it down just like it, you know Tumani's music exists in his fingers and his ears he's not having a conceptual idea like wouldn't it be interesting to take all 12 tones and hear them all once and then you know there's not that kind of thing the idea of the composer I don't think had happened on such a level you know in early in early music so so that was the first thing is to actually say okay I want to play not Jarabi which is a traditional griot piece but I want to play Tumani's composition which is based on Jarabi just like I play Bach's composition which is the Chacon based on a dance that's everybody played it's recognizable to anyone oh that's a Chacon but there's a Bach one which everyone plays and likes so I wanted to present that idea first Unfortunately, what happened is that I, I, I finally went to, to Bamako to play with Tumani in 2016. And having played this music a lot, it's not a music that you want to just play the same time every, every, every time you play it. It's kind of a modular improvisation at the, the simplest, and then more can happen. And then when I was in Bamako and I listened to a guy called Jelly Philly Sako play Jarabi, which I'd been playing for years by that time, and he played it for about 45 minutes and every moment was different but recognizable so it was like listening to somebody play a Bach piece that you knew well but just do whatever he wanted with it so that introduced a new layer about of, of what a classical musician could do when he's imp- interpreting music you know um because now we're so slave we're slaves to the text you know and we try and we think all the answers lie in the text or in the composer or in the teacher and we're very scared to do our own thing you know, because there's all this pressure from around us. So in West Africa, they don't have that fear at all. They do whatever they want. I mean, they, you know, 
but you know, the musicians that I've heard, they, they they play with the piece, and 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 that's why they're accepting of what I do, which I was worried about. Are they going to accept? You know, am I playing the rhythm wrong? Am I tapping in the wrong place? And but you know, that's not how people think about music there. So there's this there's the sense of improvisation, and interpretation is really like linked to improvisation. So that happened. So the pieces became even more loose, and now I'm back to where I was before, which is, you know improvising and composing but of course with this in my so i've just made a record called 25 minutes in north vancouver which is uh, a 25 minute unedited improvisation and you can hear you know the gizmonti you can hear the tumani and and that in it but i'm not actually quoting from anything of either of them yeah you know it's interesting um they say like saraband was like a, a congolese dance the zarabanda and I've heard other musicians say that that Baroque music in general was really influenced by, by West African music. And they, they say they can hear it. I, I don't hear it as much, but, but you wow. know, that there's so much going on. So it could, it could be a whole thing. Um, I mean, I hear like the Bach, you know, Bach phrases, you know, you have something like the, the violin partita. playing it because you can see each discrete note on the page so you have a concept of I need to articulate each of those notes you know that you want to make that really clear whereas a griot would never play like that you know they'd be phrase the music if we weren't reading it if we were hearing it as words and phrases and you know and this kind of metricality that's come definitely in classical guitar especially but you hear it in all classical music now. yeah i mean apparently bach was a ferocious improviser and um there's a great book called the pianists and it's the contemporary people from that time kind of their own diaries who are like around list or these people and you, you get these incredible stories about what say what a rock star say list was or something like that and amazing stories of Bach just destroying some a foe in a salon just cutting them you know with the with the with all the with the strings breaking off of the, the pianos and just just killing it um and also you know they said that he was not metro you know he was they were not super tied to the metronome like like music is now yeah well they try to invent a metronome at one point and they were like but it's impossible you can't you couldn't make a mechanical device that could give the musicians the pulse that they need because the pulse is never the same it's always changing okay. you know and so it was it was kind of considered an impossibility and if you, i mean that's that's i don't know if you know william kentridge a wonderful south african artist uh, does a lot of things at the Met, yeah, the operas and that. But he had a piece called The Refusal of Time when he talks about what happened in Europe when they centralized and mechanized time. You know, and you, for the first time, you have this idea of time being referred back to one place. You know, and everybody is an hour or two or three before or after. 
And this was a, a huge idea, you know, that hadn't existed. And the same in tuning and temperament, you know, the, the idea of being able to tune instruments the same in every country, the A being 440, and then the intervals being able to be mechanically divided into exactly 12, you know, they had this idea of equal temperament, but they could only do it in the early 20th century because they only had the, the technology. But they, I think they did a study where they, did, they looked at all the main piano tuners of London and they were all doing so-called equal temperament completely differently. You know, and then you go back 200 years, you know, everyone was tuning their instruments differently. You go to Zimbabwe and you say, how is the Mbira tuned? And it's like, well, how is it tuned? You know, it depends on the musician. And the Kora was like that. You know, if you listen to early Kora recordings, you can almost hear the different, who the different players are because they have very individual tunings. Whereas now you go to Bamako and everybody has a guitar tuner stuck to the, to the neck of their Kora and they're tuning in equal, in equal temperament. So just that small, these small changes, and then, you know, everybody hearing Tumani's recordings, and so they start to play Jarabi all like Tumani plays it, because that's the popular way, whereas before that, you know, every region would play it differently, and if you went to Gambia, there'd be one style of Kora playing. I mean, even if you listen to Sidiki Diabate, Tumani's father, and Amadou Bansang Jabate, who's, and they were separated for 20 years, they didn't see each other, the one was in the Gambia, and Siddiqui had moved to Mali, their playing styles are completely different, you know, because they've 20 years change, you know. So all of these things, and now we're two, 300 years after Bach, and we're trying to reimagine how he played. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful, wonderful thing to think about because we actually have no idea, you know. Yeah. It's like imagining trying to work out what Keith Jarrett would sound like, but you've never heard jazz. You've got a photograph of the piano. You've got a transcription of the Kong concert. And you've got some reviews of his concerts and like the fact that he used to hum along and like do these weird contortions with his body and you kind of try and work out what it sounded like and you know rebuild the piano from some pictures from an oil painting you know right <laughs> and, and so this approach that you've uh, stumbled upon for yourself like you by by improvising you're you're in the land of of no mistakes right so that kind of I mean gives a lot more life and, and to your own experience making the music. Well, you know, we got ex we got excited in the 80s about different cultures and maybe just before as well. You know, Ravi Shankar came to the West and introduced people to Indian music and then there was this big explosion of, of world music and African music and so it was very interesting to hear people who've been, who'd been cut off from, you know, dominant Western culture and had learned music in a different way and that was really fascinating. Whereas now... We know that we're all we all have phones. We're all watching YouTube. We all, you know, grew up. I mean, Tumani's children grew up watching MTV and playing the Cora to pop videos. You know, so that's changed. So, so I find what's interesting is, you know, where is the where is the human element that comes out of a particular music? And what I find in the griots is that there's a connection to the to the body in a really natural way still because of the way they learn music and because of the way they think about music. So you go and you see some seven-year-old having his first chorus lesson and it's the most natural thing in the world and he grooves like hell and he plays a syncopation that would take, that like most university students wouldn't be able to do because it's in his body and the way, and he doesn't know that it's difficult and it just happens naturally. And if you think of English, imagine we learned English in the way we learn music, 
we wouldn't be able to speak after two generations. You know, if you, if, if, you know, if we intervened in the process of language acquisition and started having half an hour lessons every two days in a locked room with a teacher, you know, it would be a complete fucking disaster. <laughs> so, so I'm very, I'm more interested in that, and that's why I'm more interested in individuals than I'm interested in musical cultures. Like, I'm not particularly interested in Malian music as such. I'm interested in certain Malian musicians who really connect to that, just as I would be interested in Indian musicians who connect to that, and classical musicians who, who have that ability to sort of transcend the ideas about music and, and their body. You can see, and Bach would have totally been that, you know, I mean, by the descriptions. Yeah, so you, you, you uh, well, just an aside, because it ran through my head. You know, we actually, we, uh, we had wars, like, in this country, but when they when they instituted the uh, the the time thing, when the when the railroads came through and they needed to standardize the times, there were like towns that were like, "We're not changing our clock, you bastards!" You yeah, know, it was like oh, it was like a whole thing, you know. I guess uh, hmm. they, didn't, they didn't win that one. Well, there's not enough resistance, and I, I I see that in 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 West Africa, there's not enough there's not enough resistance. Because there's not enough knowledge. Because classical music, where a lot of this came out of, I mean, I, I think a lot of what we see in rock, in contemporary pop music and rock music, you know, singing in tune, auto tune, all this, which is now massive in West African pop and all that, this all came out of classical music. And classical musicians aren't honest about it. They're not honest about what in tune means. So these West African mus- musicians who come with these incredible, beautiful temperaments, which would rival the temperaments of Bach and that you know they come to the, they come to Germany to play a concert and, and they want to play with a keyboard player and the keyboard player will say well you know you are out of tune you know or they come to record an album and the producer the English producer will say oh well we need to tune this core a bit because it is a bit out of tune you know but I mean equal temperament what a, every pianist is, is tuned in today would have been a total abomination to Bach's ears to that era and this was something that was fought about just like the time zones. People thought about it and wrote books about it. There's there's reams and reams of books until they eventually decided in the Industrial Revolution, when every home had to have a piano, that this was the only way they could do it. But every musician had their own way, and Bach wrote a beautiful diagram, apparently, in, on his 24 Preludes and Fugues, which he showed a simple way that teenagers, who he was applying to, for a job to teach teenagers, they could tune the harpsichord in this very simple way, and he showed how... And there they could play in that tuning all 24 keys. And he wrote those 24 preludes and fugues. That's one of the theories. I like the theory, so I'm going to say it's... A <laughs> yeah, we're not restricted to, to facts. Yeah. No. <laughs> so you also got into um, the South African... Uh, I'd like to... Maybe you could talk a little about that and, and demonstrate. Yeah, I mean, South, South, Af- South African music... Uh... And this was the Khoisan people? Well, I, I came to South African music, you know, when I was growing up, South African music was, you didn't, you know, when I'm talking about, like, what we called Buru music, the, the Afrikaans folk music, you know, um, that was like, you know, there were two types of music that I was taught to hate. It was country and Western music and Buru music, you know, it was like that, you just, you did not listen to that. That was absolutely the worst form of terrible. And so I met a, I met a guy called Alex van Heerden, uh, in in the late 90s and we started playing together and Alex had started in jazz and started playing in the townships of Port Elizabeth trumpeter 
and then moved to Cape Town at the age of 17, uh, got on a bus actually from Port Elizabeth and joined a band called The Genuines on tour, which was um, a Cape Town sort of punk band that that came out in the 80s and, and made you know this mix of what we call guma, which is the carnival music of, of Cape Town, um, and and various and various things. So Alex introduced me to a lot of this music in a positive way for the first time. So it had been in my ears and in my environment, but I'd kind of rejected it. So he played me, you know, Mani Rees, the uh, Afrikaans violinist who played Buru music on the violin, and he played me, and we listened to Fastrap, which is the the um, you know, you have this weird thing where there was this racial divide in Afrikaans music and Afrikaans culture, where during the apartheid era, they had to decide that they were white Afrikaners and coloured Afrikaners. They, you know, which is the which is the the middle racial distinction in South Africa. You were white, you were black, or you were coloured. And there were three layers in society. So you would have three edu- you had three education departments for each of these racial distinctions you know so the white people would get proper education the colored people would be educated enough that they could do you know desk jobs and the black people would be educated enough that they could be told to carry something from here to there and sign their name on a check and that was that was the bantu education system that 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 was in place for many 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 years and so in order to create the, the complexity, obviously it's not difficult to, it wasn't difficult to know who was black and who was white. They had to do a huge thing to, to get rid of the, uh, to, to get the white people out of the menial labor economy where they were because everyone, you know, the miners in the, in the early 20th century were, were black and white and everybody. So they had to create this thing to say to the white people, no, you must get out of there. You must, you know, and they, but what do you do with the middle, which was the Afrikaans speaking people, um, who were brown, you know, and maybe a little bit white and maybe a little bit darker. That was the big complication in apartheid, is what, is how to work out who was who. And they separated families. They, you know, one a sister and a brother could be classified differently because of the way that they looked. And that happened inside the music as well, because you had Afrikaans music, which was a mix of, of you know, these people were creating music and creating the language altogether. And that separated into Buru music, which was the, the serious... Uh, you know, white Afrikaans music and the fastrap, which was the farm laborer, uh, colored, mixed race Afrikaans music. And the way that they speak Afrikaans is, is, is very different. So Alex was interested in, 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 in these two extremes of, of the music and how they linked up. And this is a sort of proof of the fact that these had been, this had been more one people before. You know, this had been a culture that had been created together. And and I think it's a great way of of of, of understanding class in music. You know that, that how Bach would have played compared to how the guy down the road playing the, the the dance, the wedding dance, were probably quite similar. And slowly, as this idea of serious music in the concert hall and the empire, you know, then music became more and more serious. And the split between folk and classical music by the time you get to Wagner is so massive. You know, but. And so now we think if we want to understand Bach, we have to go to a classical conservatory, but probably we'd be better off in the forests of Sweden learning with a Swedish fiddle player to understand how Bach played. Or, in my view, in the streets of Bamako playing with the griots because, you know, this, the way of oral, orally learning music, I think, is closer. So I think we're looking in the wrong place when we try to understand Bach and we go to a, 
you know, conservatory, which is what I initially did. This, this is a completely modern invention, that this way of playing Bach, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's produced Glenn Gould and, you know, wonderful things, you know, but I don't think it's, it's very... And the early music movement coming out of that tried to recreate it, but I think there's, there's some source materials that they overlooked. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> interesting, you know, when you're telling me all this uh, history... About apartheid, and it's it's so strange how w when you study music, the history that gets uncovered is not the stuff that they tend to teach you in your high school or whatever. You know, like I learned more about American imperialism by just learning about Cuban music and how that all played out in the sugar plantations and all this stuff, and. Um, yeah, so like I didn't know about any of this stuff. So yeah, and then, so then you start you 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 got into this this the South African music and figured yeah. something out. Yeah, we we so we we started doing things like we had these, and we made, we made a record called Sachtefle, where we basically we got together on a farm, which in the name was Sachtefle, of the farm. It was about two hours from Cape Town. This was in two thousand, and I got asked by uh, a kind of like the, the Cape Town equivalent of Afropop. Um, they, were, they were starting as an online um, uh, music magazine and they started a series called The Wonder Gigs, which was a one year at the SABC Studios, South African Broadcasting Corporation Studios in Cape Town. Beautiful room, 100-seater recording studio. And they started doing these monthly concerts um, and recording them and releasing them as records. And I got asked to do one um, with String Quartet and to make a collaboration and I said this is this is the opportunity to work with Alex because we'd been talking about working together so we got together on on a farm and we spent about a week or two together and every day we spent about 15 or 20 minutes writing music that's all and the rest of the time we you know went up the, we ran up the mountain and swam in dams and cooked food and, and things and it was a really effortless amazing process of composition which I've, I've only experienced once again in my life and that was when we did it again for another project a few years later um, and what we did was we Alex would come with a, with, a, with a musical idea that came from you know that came from his sort of oral repository of Cape music the carnival music Cape jazz like something like <laughs> That would be something that that could be played on, you know, on trumpet or, you know, in the in the carnival. Just one phrase that would have, you know, been followed by many others. And we'd take just that one phrase, and then I'd bring an idea from from contemporary classical music. So for that, we we used a, a, a phase like Steve Reich phase, and we had two, we had a violin and a viola playing that, and then going out of phase. And while that was happening, we had a double bass player who was doing this kind of calabash inspired bass solo. And on top, Alex was playing trumpet in, in the actual Cape style. So you had this Steve Reich phase in the middle. You had this like improvised kind of, you know, West African style double bass underneath. And then on the top, this, you know, Alex was like sort of, a, you know, he had the kind of miles, very muted, beautiful sound, but he was totally immersed in, 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 a, in the, the language of Cape jazz and, and in, in a very beautiful way. Or we'd take a, another melody and we'd say, right, we're gonna, we, we, you know, let's we're gonna harmonize this in parallel harmonies like Messian, 
you know, and and we in but very simple ideas. We just take one idea from from contemporary Western classical and one kind of thing, or we'd sit together and I'd he'd write a melody, you know, a phrase, and then I'd answer it with a phrase from some other place, and then he'd uh, and then we'd harmonize them using a Messian technique or a Stravinsky something, or you know, and we made this record called Sachtefle, and that was my first actual record. I was playing viola in the string quartet, and and it was it was a really amazing time and then and then we d- we 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 got together later i made a record called blomdurns where i where i brought these ideas together on solo guitar so you know a lot of, a lot of music in, in we always used to argue alex and i about you know all music in 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 the western cape is in the major and i was i'm all, i'm a bit minor they have this interesting thing like this the afrikaners the white afrikaners they'll play They'll use this chord, the sixth, right? And if you go into the farms, you'll hear the 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 minor seventh. I mean, no, am I getting it wrong? No, they get yeah. Sorry, I haven't thought about this for a while. They'll use this as the tonic chord, and the, and the, and and, and, the, and you often find you know so there's little changes, but actually, you know the the that's a actual seventh. That's a seventh overtone. Actually, so they were both on either side of this natural overtone that the, that the instruments couldn't reach, and then you and we found this guy who tuned his, co- his, his guitar like this and played all the chords in these. You know, so we were just playing with a lot of these different things, and that's that's what happened. Um, <laughs> I went on a tangent there. I know that's that's fascinating. I got I, I haven't heard that album yet. That sounds amazing. So Blomdurance was like very simple guitar music. same music that uh, Abdullah Ibrahim was, was 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 drawing on you know the famous Cape jazz yeah. that's where Alex that's where Alex was coming from and then I was taking that back to the guitar and doing it in a very simple way so that piece that cyclical round and round of you know something with three chords that comes out of the church music in 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 in, in the Western Cape they call it the quirky um, you know this this like just trance you know making church music into trance music and and then we did another record together with string quartet but now by this time i was playing guitar and it was called a spura bedi beck van an eisterfak hat which translates as footprints at the mouth of an iron pig's hole the iron pig is a porcupine and and it came from a picture um a picture from the Blake and lloyd collection which is an amazing uh, collection of uh, language and poems and drawings of Khoisan people in the late 1800s that was documented by a, a linguist uh, for over a long period of time and, and so we made a string quartet based on that so that's kind of how I started to make friends with with the music of of, of the Western Cape but it's still it you know it was where I was but my but it wasn't it wasn't who I was and it wasn't you know we limited ourselves to that region for a, for a long time and and Alex died in a car accident in 2009 two weeks after we did a live 
show we had a kind of reunion show we hadn't been playing together for a while and we had a reunion a 10-year reunion of the Sachte play recording um with myself and a, the double bass player Bryden Bolton who'd, who'd worked with Alex since they were young and we made a trio uh performance and luckily we recorded it and then Alex died two weeks later so that album Alex is also all these are on my website DerekRipper.com um but we limited ourselves to this idea that we wanted to remain rooted in South African music and people and places and and that and so after that I I did make some solo records still in this kind of vein but you know when I started transcribing and playing Gismonti and then again uh, Tumani I started to incorporate the other things you know that that were actually a big part of my musical world as well you know and that was the kind of liberating moment when I realized I didn't have to be South African in 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 the musical terms <laughs> right and I guess you know I I was just speaking to a Bansori player uh, a white guy and he's kind of like you know no one wants to hear a white Bansori player. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess, you know, in the world, there's so much identity politics and stuff like that. And, and with pe- what people want to see if they go to hear some African music, like how how does that, is it different for you because you're playing an, an acoustic nylon string guitar or, or do people say like, like why why should I go hear this guy? Like does, does that go through your head? Like do you, do you deal with these kind of issues? Like well, well, when I made the one night on Earth, which is these Cora transcriptions, the first question I was asking myself is, are people going to think these are covers? Because if you think in classical music, it's not covers at all. You know, Glenn Gould didn't play covers; he interpreted Bach. It's a very serious and wonderful thing. And but if uh, if if he'd done an album of Beatles tunes, it would have been covers. So, so are we are we talking about African music in the using the the language of pop music, or are we using the language of classical music? And I was really trying to say we should be using the language of classical music as well, you know, because it's neither. But you know, how can we see it through the lens of of classical music? So that was the beginning of of my project, and I put the album out thinking, okay, what's going to happen, you know? And people didn't think, oh, these are second rate covers. I mean, the first reviews would the reviewers would say well why would i want to listen to this guy play the music when i can listen to tumani play the music but i think people have recognized that it just it brings it's not better or worse or another version it's 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 i mean it is another version it's just another perspective on the music just like we want to hear multiple perspectives of a piece of bach you know we want to hear public cells play the cello suites and we want to hear yo yo ma play the cello suites and we want to hear and you know that's what's interesting in classical music is different people's readings and and of course i'm going to play uh this music different to tumani because my musical background is completely different and my instrument is completely different so some people find value in that and i'm sure there are others who just wouldn't even bother because they're quite happy listening to tumani and you know absolutely tumani is an incredible musician so that's totally fine but i hope that people can you know that we can have this idea that it's actually important to hear multiple readings of things and multiple con- contexts in, in in things and so you know if i had been playing tumani's music on the cora i don't think i would have had a chance in hell you know of anyone wanting to come and fair enough we haven't got there yet but i think we should be getting there you know at some point because 
there's some you know there's no reason why some because it's all about love you know what what do you love what what are you drawn to it's not about what culture you're born in anymore you know it's about what when you the radio goes on and you hear something and you go wow that and you just go for it you know and that's going to have to become the impetus of how we learn music because no one can say that they're born in a culture and that's the music they knew and therefore that's the music they play sorry it's over <laughs> Right. So any any um, other anything you have your s- sight set on, like if if you could just press a button and you could <laughs> you wouldn't have to go through all the the hellish uh, or yeah. maybe joyful transcription time. Is there some other kind of something else in the in the globe that's kind of drawing you right now? Well, we were speaking before you started recording about Indian classical music, and I've I've got some shows coming up in London with Debashish Bhattacharya. The, Indian slide guitarist, uh, incredible musician, and again, there's a great syncretism. You know, he's he's playing Indian classical music on a Hawaiian guitar, you know, which and has become a totally accepted uh, thing. So when I first went to India and wanted to study the violin at the age of 19, very naively for two months, I thought I could pick up a little bit, you know, and I realized, okay, these guys are serious. They've got violin and like I'm not going to be able to even touch this that's what made me decide I'm going to focus on guitar and I had this idea I was listening to Keith Jarrett's solo piano concerts then the the, the improvised piano concerts and I had this kind of idea then that wouldn't it be amazing to be able to do something like what he did on the piano on the guitar wouldn't it be amazing to be able to improvise like that on the guitar take you know explore multiple tunings in one piece go for ages and that's you know been a kind of impossibility something i had to shelve you know that, that's been kind of impossible and and i'm feeling pretty happy uh this this vancouver project i just did uh this guy asked me to come to his studio to record i had nothing to record but i said hey yeah why not and i arrived and he had everything set up so i said well just press record and i played for 25 minutes and that's what we kept and that's what we released and for the first time, I was able to capture an actual long-scale composition, which was made in the moment. And so that's something I, I would like to explore. It's hard live. You know, I don't know how Keith, how Keith does it, you know, to, to, to go, you know, because he's committed. You know, I suppose, you know, people are expecting that now. So he, he kind of, you know, he can't go quoting the Khan concert. No, not that he would. <laughs> So that's that's something that I want to really want to really develop, you know. And when I play with Debashish, I realize that there's still so much to learn, you know, from, you know, from so much music, or, you know. Of so I'm just kind of wandering around this huge uh, world of. I'm working on a project of transcribing the songs of Fanta Sacco, who's an incredible Malian singer whose music is not very well known but she would have been one of the influences of Tumani a lot of the pieces that Tumani play can, come from the recording that she made in 1971 so I'm transcribing them for solo I'm, I'm looking for a very good singer that, that, that my idea is to have someone singing them in, in English translated because I want to totally recontextualize it you know because we're used to hearing griots singing and experiencing that but I want that shared humanity of it where we hear it and go oh these people are singing about love they're singing about, you know, death. They're singing about things that, you know, it's not just some strange thing. It's like, oh, these griots and it's 800 years old and isn't this, you know. So I, I, I want to get to that shared place. And that, that's why in a concert I'll play something by Tumani and I'll play something by Bach because I'm not changing any of the variables. I'm still a white guy with a, with a classical guitar in both. So I've taken away the otherness 
for somebody who knows Bach, they can listen to the Bach fugue and then they can hear the Tumani and they can go, wow, this is really similar. And it's similar because of the way I'm interpreting both, but it's also similar because it's human music. Yeah, and and there's a lot of similarities and maybe maybe historical similarities like you said you know i don't know but there doesn't even need to have been you know i mean uh, there's there's a shared something happening and that's what i'm trying to emphasize you know that these resources are open to us you know for sure so you want to take us out with a little uh, improvisation wow pressure or <laughs> you could go on the editing room floor So in like uh, 300 years, some conservatory students is going <laughs> to have to play the transcription of that. Shame. Exactly. I know, I know. It's terrible. <laughs> Properly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't fuck it up, okay? <laughs> All right. Great hacking with you. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah.